All right, how many of you have ever been to an escape room? How many of you actually, okay, wow, all right, so, so, and for those of you who don't know what an escape room is, uh, it's exactly like it sounds. It's an activity that you can go to with friends or family, and uh, typically it's a business that sets up a room, and inside the room are a lot of puzzles, and you do the puzzles in order to eventually, what? Escape from the room, right? You can't escape. And now in California, they can't legally lock the door anymore. Um, so you can, you can tap out at any moment. But you get these puzzles, you do the puzzles, and then you move on to the next thing. I remember the first time, though, I did an escape room. There's this moment where you walk in and you look at the room and you're like, so now what? You see this stuff and you know there's puzzles somewhere and you're trying to make sense of it because you want to figure out, what do I do next? And so you kind of look around. And then the crazy thing is, is you complete one puzzle and then it opens up to another puzzle. And then you think, so, so now what? And, and it just kind of goes on, on like that. But that, that feeling of, all right, so what do I do now? Um, it kind of struck me that we're going to be looking today at a section of God's word where a person would probably feel that way. They find themselves in a so-now-what moment. And the person that we're talking about is Noah. Because over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the story of Noah's life, and last week, specifically, the flood event. The flood event where God told Noah, I'm going to destroy the earth with a flood because of its wickedness, but I'm going to save you and your family by putting you on an ark with two of every kind of, of animal and I'm going to save your life, and I'm going to preserve you. And so what happened last week is the story got to the place where the flood came, the earth was wiped out, the ark came to rest, God let them out of the ark. And and so Noah was now embarking into a world that looked completely different than the world he had known up to this point. And so we're going to pick up our story where we find Noah basically in a kind of, so, so what now moment? The earth is completely destroyed and it's being renewed, but, but now what do I do? So look with me at Genesis chapter 8. We're going to pick up in verse 18. That's where we're going to start. <clears throat> God tells Noah it's okay to come out of the ark, and so Noah does. And starting in verse 18, we read these words. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, now Noah doesn't hear these words yet, it's just being said that the Lord said this in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Now stop there. This is actually a remarkable thing that we just heard God say. He says, I'm never again going to do what I just did to creation. Even though humanity is still what? Sinful. Did you, did you see that? We, we talked about this a little bit. Everybody says, yeah, Noah, what if I say, what did Noah bring on the ark? You'd say, well, Noah brought himself, his wife, his sons, their daughter, or their wives, and he brought two of every kind of animal. But Noah also brought onto the ark his sin. And God says, even though this is a case, I'm never going to destroy. While, verse 22, while the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, 
shall not cease. So, so God's clear in what he's going to do. He's not going to destroy the world again with a flood. But, but what about Noah? What's, what's he and his family supposed to do now? Well, in verses 1 through 17 of chapter 9, God really spells out for Noah the now what. Here is what you're supposed to be engaged in. And so I'm going to break this section down in, in three ways. There's kind of three parts to chapter 9 that help us to understand, all right, so now what am I supposed to do? What does God desire of me? And the first is found in verses 1 through 3. And I call this section the commissioning. The commissioning. Because Noah, in these verses, he receives a commission. He receives a, a charge from God. He is assigned a duty by God. There is something that he is called to carry out. That's what a, that's what a commission is. He's, he's supposed to fulfill a particular function. What is that function? Look at verses 1 through 3. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Have, have we heard this before? We, we have. We absolutely have. We'll come back to it. And then he says, verse 2, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you what? Everything. God's doing something here. He's giving Noah a commission. He's giving him a particular function to do. If Noah asks the question, so what now? What's humanity supposed to be about? God says, well, let's go back to what humanity was always supposed to be about. Be fruitful and multiply. He said those very same words to someone else. Anybody remember who he said those words to? Adam and Eve. The very first man and woman after they were created, God said, here's your commission. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He gave that commission to Adam and Eve and he gives that commission to Noah and here's why. Adam and Eve, as well as Noah and his descendants, have been made in the image of God. And God doesn't move the goalposts. He doesn't change his plans. He doesn't change his purposes. God created humanity to bear his image in the world, to be mirrors of his character, to be mirrors of his attributes, to rule and fill the earth as though God himself were present. And so when God comes to Noah and he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, he's telling Noah to do what humanity was is and is always supposed to do. In fact, here's the very first point under the commissioning. Humanity's purpose is to glorify God by bearing God's image. This is what you and I and every human being were created to do. And so it doesn't change. When God wiped the world clean and he said, I'm going to start over with you, Noah, it was like it was a director saying, okay, again, from the top, here we go. Let's run this thing again. Humanity's mission remains the same, to image and to reflect God in the world, to fill the world with those who would show what God is like. Now, just in case Noah or you and I don't think that that is ultimately the purpose, look down at verse 7. In case we miss it, God says as clearly as he can, and you, again, Noah, (laughs) be fruitful. And multiply, increase greatly 
on the earth and multiply in it. He's like, do, do, do you hear me, Noah? Humanity is called to be my image bearers, to reflect me in creation. And so just as that was Adam and Eve's responsibility, so it now is the responsibility of Noah. And as I said earlier, so is it the responsibility for all of us. I love this about God. He doesn't come alongside and say, okay, that didn't work out so well. Let's try this again. He comes and he says, no, the exact same thing remains true. Humanity is to bear God's image. And then what he does is though to like put an exclamation point on this, he says in verse two and verse three some kind of interesting things. But both of these points that he makes in verses two and three are to emphasize your uniqueness and my uniqueness amongst all created things. The first thing he says in verse two, let's look at it again. He says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand, they are delivered. What's God saying here? He's saying to Adam and Eve and he's saying to you and to me, humanity's uniqueness in creation is marked by animals being subject to us. Humanity's uniqueness in all of creation is evidenced by the fact that God says here, listen, the animals are going to fear you. Now we look at that and we think of the phrase, oh, they're more afraid of you than you are of them, right? And there's an element in which, yes, because of sin, there's this fear that's created. But actually what God is doing is he's hearkening back to the fact that humanity has been given dominion over the animals. God wants you and I to hear something. You're not a monkey. You're different than animals. They're there for you. You're not there for them. This is further illustrated when he says in verse three, these words, every moving thing that lives shall be what? Food. (laughs) Food for who? For you. And as I give you, as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Everything that you will need to survive is now available to you, including the animals. God here is saying, listen, you're unique, not only in the fact that animals are subject to you, but also in the fact that they're a source of provision for us. They're a source of provision for us. The animals are there to nurture you, to give you what you ultimately need in order to survive. If you're going to bear my image, you got to stay alive. You're different from the creation, yes. You're unique because they're subject to you. But you're also unique from the creation because they're there to provide the sustenance that you need. Now, I want to circle back, though. As God makes that point, he makes that point to emphasize something. We're to fill the earth and subdue it, to bear his image in the world, which is why I can say very confidently, because the rest of the Bible proclaims this, here's the takeaway we will only find our meaning and purpose when we live for God and not ourselves. We will only find our meaning and purpose in our lives when we live for God, not for ourselves. See, it's upside down when we in this world try to live in the pursuit of our desires, in the pursuit of our pleasures. When we do that, we're failing to live as we were designed. And so our lives fail to find the purpose and the meaning for which they were created to have. Because your purpose and your meaning comes not from the things that you do. And it doesn't come from the fact of of who you are. It comes from your identity in the God who, who made you. 
And, and so what is being said here to us is you are on the right path. You're on the correct path. You have a fulfillment in your life when you live for him who created you and not for yourself. In fact, I would be so bold as to say all the significant problems of our lives, things like anger, anxiety, depression, a lack of joy, they ultimately stem from we get this wrong. We live for ourselves, and we don't live for the God who made us. We, we wonder sometimes why you go ahead and you put oil in the engine, or I shouldn't say oil, you put water in the engine of a car, and it doesn't run. <laughs> because the car wasn't designed to run on water. It was designed to run on gasoline. And when we substitute the things of this world... And we seek to find our pleasures as, as the means of giving us the fulfillment and meaning to our lives rather than the God who created us. Well, we fail. Because think about the anxiety that you experience in t- at times. So much anxiety is tied to this truth. There is something that we feel like we want. There's something that we feel like we need. And we're not sure if we're ultimately going to get it. And because that, that need is not potentially going to be fulfilled or there's not the security that we know for sure that it's going to happen, we begin to get ultimately anxious. But the focus ultimately is on ourselves as far as like what that thing is going to do for us. And so anxiety begins to build. Why? Because the focus is in upon ourselves. Ultimately, when we get angry, the same thing begins to happen. I want something from you, or I want something from someone, and they're not giving me that thing. And so I get frustrated, I get angry, because the focus is, if I don't have that, then my life isn't going to have the joy that it's supposed to have. God has designed you, listen to me very carefully, and he has designed me not to live for ourselves, but for him. In fact, the very reason that Jesus came to die, you've heard me quote this verse often the last few weeks, and you're going to hear me say it again next week, is he came that we would live no longer for ourselves, but for him. It's a whole purpose for which we were created, to be restored as image bearers of God. And so God tells Noah, hey man, you're going to be on the right path as long as you be fruitful and multiply, i.e. as long as you live as one of my image bearers, living for me and not for your, yourself. And then what God does in this, he doesn't just simply give a commission here. He follows this up right away with a command. He says, here's your mission. Here's what you're entrusted with doing. But now let me give you a command as you do it. So, so what follows in the next verses here is this command of God. And, and I think God shows his wisdom here. God shows his perfections when he does this. Because he's just given us a commission. What's the commission? He says, be fruitful and multiply. And by the way, all the animals are there for you to have what you need to live and survive as my image bearers. But then he comes in the very next verse and he says this. But you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. What the what? Like, what's that all about? I I get being fruitful and multiply. I get the animals being available. But then you tell me, to be careful to not eat flesh with its life that is its, its blood. What's he saying here? He's actually saying something I think that's really neat. He's saying something that's actually very helpful for us. Have you ever noticed when people are given authority over something, there's this tendency within the human heart to do something with the power and authority we've been given? 
Anybody want to take a guess at sometimes what we do when we're given power and authority? Do we typically use it for the betterment of others and those around us? What, what's the typical human response to receiving power and authority? Yeah, the temptation is that we use it for ourselves. The temptation is that we ultimately use it to abuse. God has just told humanity, hey, see all those animals out there? They're for you. And they're for you to do what you will in order to survive. But then he comes and he gives this command. And with this command, he's saying something very specific. Do you know when animals kill other animals to eat them, they then don't typically throw them on the barbecue and prepare them, right? The blood is still in the... How many of you have cats, you know? Have you ever had a cat... They go out, we have this cat, and it gets out at night every, every time, and it stays out until it gets a mouse, and then it lovingly brings the mouse back into the garage, and then drops that mouse, still twitching and wiggling, right on the doorstep, right? It's gross. But that's what God's getting at here. He's saying, do you see how animals treat other animals? They, they go after them, they, they kill them. Sometimes my cat doesn't even eat the animal, it just kills it to play with it, right? God says, not you. That's not what you do. That's not how you treat the creation. You don't, you don't kill the animal the way that animals kill them. You're not flippant with your killing. You only kill for what you need, and you prepare it. What he's guarding humanity against here is a wholesale slaughter of, of animals. Do you know why that would have been important to Noah just coming off the ark? Any guesses? I said this last week. There's a limited number of animals in the world at this point. And so Noah's got to be responsible for how he stewards and takes care of the animals that exist, and he's giving him a caution. He's saying, you are to be mindful with the creation. You don't just kill to kill, and then you just don't go and eat. You're, you're intentional. And in fact, I think there's something here. Listen, if you're, you know, I'm not going to rip on PETA or tree huggers or anything like that. If that's your ilk, wonderful for you. What I'm about to say, though, applies to everybody. God's coming here and saying, listen, you want to know what it means to be human, to bear my image? You value and you respect animal life. You value and you respect animal life. They're not equal with you. You are ruling over them, but you are to treat animals in a way that you are mindful of them and use them in ways that are appropriate. And you don't just simply discard and deal with the creation the way that the creation deals with itself. Because you're made in my image. Stewardship. That's what he's talking about here. I think it's a great command. I love that the command is there. Because we tend to abuse our power. And listen, let's be honest. Humanity has a long trail of examples of not fulfilling this. I mean, the, 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 the buffalo don't roam anymore in the hills, do they? They're not on the prairies of America anymore. Like our history demonstrates at times, we don't consider the natural environment the way that we should. I'm not talking about environmentalism. I'm just talking about the fact that God looks at those things and says, you steward the creation. Use it for your benefit, but you don't abuse it. Make sense? But then he says something else. Look at verse five. He's not just, that's what I'm talking about when I say value and respect animal life. Because then he turns it and he says, you should also value and respect human life, but in a different way. Verse 5. 
And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God's just told us to be stewards of animal life. Now he comes and he says, I want you to understand how you should think about human life. Human life is so precious to God that he says something about human life that he doesn't say about animal life. Like if you kill an animal in order to eat it to sustain your life, that's fine. But God says you kill another human being, what does he say in verse 6? Your life is forfeit. Because when you or I murder someone, take a life of someone else, you are taking the life of someone who bears the image of God. God, as the giver of life, says that life is mine. And if you take that life, you're robbing me of what belongs to me. And the punishment for that is your own life. God here exalts all of human life to a position that we must hear, which is every life is valuable. Murder is here clearly being forbidden. Because man is made in God's image. In fact, he says in verse 5, here's the deal. Even if an animal kills a man, that animal's life is to be taken from, from him. God says, value and respect animal and human life. Now, we might read this and look at it and think, oh, well, God here is simply forbidding just murder, right? And he is. He is forbidding murder. But... We need to take the entirety of God's word into account. Let me just ask, does God only care about the physical act of murder? (laughs) Or, Or do all of God's commands, are they ultimately designed to go deeper and to deal with the heart? Jesus would say in Matthew chapter five, talking on the, the Beatitudes, <clears throat> when he's talking on, on um, the Mount of Beatitudes, he says, here's the deal. He says, you've heard it said you shouldn't murder. Well, I'm here to tell you something else. If, if you hate your brother or you hate your sister in your heart, you've committed murder as well. And so the commands of God, even the command that he gives to Noah, they're eventually more fully expressed throughout the rest of the Bible. Now, why do I say that? Why do I say that? Because I was reading it this week and I was studying this passage and I'm like, dude, easy commands to follow. <laughs> I'm not gonna go around abusing animals, swinging cats by their tails, you know, and throwing them down cliffs, right? Done. Not, I've never done that. Also never murdered anybody. I want my cookie. I'm doing a great job, right? I, I am living the life that God wants for me. But it's not just about that. It's about the people of God understand that the commands point to something deeper. It's what is in our hearts towards not just the creation, but towards one another. Because I can say all day long, well, I've never murdered anybody. But ultimately in my heart, I've thought things. I've said things under my breath that demonstrate that, you know what, even I fall short of the commands that God has called us to live. Which is why ultimately, why ultimately we need a savior, don't we? Noah brought his sin with him onto the ark and he brought his sin with him off of the ark. And Noah and his sons, we're gonna see, they failed to even live up to this. And that's why ultimately when we come here to this place, we celebrate the fact that even though we fail to obey these commands, 
even though this still remains God's path and direction for us, Jesus Christ entered in to our fallen condition and he ultimately comes to deal with our hearts to not just cover the external actions but to give us new hearts, to take our hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh and then to empower us to live and to obey the commands that God gives, not so that we can be loved by him but ultimately as an expression that we are loved, loved people. And, and I come and I say all of that because here's a takeaway that I had from this passage that I want us to think about just for a moment. It's this. If these things are true that we've already talked about, if this is the commission, if this is the commands of God, then we as the people of God, if we've really had changed hearts, if we're really his sons and his daughters, we are to be engaged in caring for, defending, and promoting life. If God cares so much about human life, that he would say that your life or my life is forfeit if we murder someone. If Jesus would come and say, even if you think the thought towards your neighbor, you have committed murder in your heart. And if God has redeemed us and made us new, then, then it's not just about the, the act. It's not about just not murdering somebody. It's about actually being engaged in caring for, defending, and promoting life. Are you tracking with me with that? It's, it's, not just, it's just not about, well, I'm not doing that thing. It's about what does God want us to be engaged in. Yesterday, here in the worship center, we had the celebration of life for a dear sister who passed away. Flan Sanapoli had ALS for five years. The last two years of her life, she couldn't talk. She couldn't move. Everything had to be done for her. And the primary caregiver in her life was her husband. Now, the social sciences would look at somebody like Floanne and, and they would say, yeah, she's a human being, she's alive, but, but she can't do anything. Does she really have worth? Does she really have value? Like, that sounds kind of cold or hard for me to, to say, but, but think about it, right? I mean, she can't do it. What can she contribute? And there are some in our world today that would say, you know what, the best thing is just to end her life, just to, just to cut it short. But I'll tell you something. I was able to watch as her husband, Fred, lived out this command. He didn't just simply come and not murder his wife. He cared for, promoted, and defended her life. He took care and loved somebody who could not do anything, could not even show him any expressions of love in return. Because he was a man who understood that God valued his wife that she was made, even though she couldn't talk, even though she couldn't move, she was an image bearer of God, and he treated her as such. That, though, comes from somebody who understands what God says. Our view and perspective should be of one another. And so I just pray that that would be true of us, that we would be engaged in caring for, defending, and promoting life, however it comes into our, our lives. But then there's one final part of this section. This is where we begin to wrap it up. He doesn't just give them a commission. He doesn't just give humanity a command. He comes and he does something. This is what God always does. He, he gives a covenant. He, he comes here in the last verses here from 8 to 17, and he, and he communicates his covenant with Noah. And what's so unique about the covenant that he makes with, with Noah here is that he makes this covenant not based upon the fact of Noah obeying the commands, 
not based upon the fact of Noah being faithful to his commission. He comes and he makes his covenant with Noah before Noah even has opportunity to show his faithfulness to any of these things. And so what does he say? Look at verse 9. Behold, God says, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you. Now, you read all that, like, so what's the covenant, <laughs> right? It's great that you're making it but, and with all these people, but what is it? Then he says it, that never again, here's the covenant, here's my covenant, Noah, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. That's my promise. You see, here's ultimately what a covenant is. You know what a covenant is? A covenant is a chosen relationship in which binding promises are made between two parties. God is coming and he's choosing Noah. And he's saying, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make a binding promise. A binding promise with you. And what's the content of the covenant? It's real simple. God will never again destroy the world with a flood. Here's my covenant It's with you. I'm never going to destroy the world again with a flood. Now, this is the first, depending upon how you understand, this is the first verbal covenant that God makes, where he says, literally, I'm making a covenant. He makes many more throughout the scriptures. When every time he makes a covenant, I don't want you to think, oh, God's changing the rules. he's, he's, He's adding two things. No, instead, he's revealing more and more of himself. His covenants are always consistent. Because when you... See the covenants that God makes when he makes a binding promise. His covenants are always first and foremost this, unilateral. God's covenants are unilateral. What what do we mean by that? It means that he is the initiator of the covenant. That the covenant comes through him. He says, this is my covenant. This is my covenant with you. It's not like he comes up to Noah and he says, you know, I was was thinking we could go in together on something. What, what What do you think? What do you think? And Noah's like, oh. I'll see that and I'll raise you this and they go back. That's not what it is. God says, I am the covenant maker and I'm coming to you. Noah, and I'm making my covenant with you. It's unilateral. It's unilateral. But then it's not only unilateral, it's of grace. It's unilateral and it's of grace. Because Noah does not deserve for God to make the promise to him that he will never destroy the earth again. God comes out of grace, even though he knows Noah still has sin in his heart and says, I'm not going to destroy you. And I'm not going to destroy the creation. In fact, that's one of the unique things about this covenant is that God makes it not just with Noah, but he makes it with all of creation. And, and it's of grace, meaning that it benefits Noah. Here's the crazy thing about it. When God says, I'm not going to destroy the world with a flood again, What's Noah being given? He's given, being given the promise that his life's not going to be destroyed. Noah's like, yay, <laughs> I, I can go on. I know that the flood's never going to destroy or take, take the life of myself or my family. And every time God makes a covenant, it's, it's always of grace. God comes to the Israelites and he says, you're going to be my people and I'm going to give you the promised land. Who benefits in that? They do. And then down the line, Makes covenant after covenant, 
And then we come to a man by the name of Jesus. And, and here's, here's where we kind of hear the words of that covenant. I'm going to quote a verse that you have heard me say many times. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only, only son. Unilateral. It doesn't say, for God so loved the world that when humanity demonstrated its faithfulness to obeying his commands and fulfilling its commissions, he sent his one and only son. Is that what it says? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Unilaterally, Christ comes into the world. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. All of grace. We don't deserve it. He does the work. And so what we see exampled here, illustrated in the covenant that God makes with Noah is this unilateral expression of God himself coming in grace to his people. And then, after he makes this covenant, and he says, this is how I will engage you, he does something. He gives the sign of his covenant to help his people remember what he said. And what's the sign of the covenant? Who wants to say it? Who wants to say it? Come on. It's a rainbow, right? It's a rainbow. We often joke in our family, we're taking the rainbow back, all right? Because that's God's covenant symbol. But you know, there's something interesting about it. In verses 12 through 17, he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to set my bow in the heavens. And so every time that I see it, I will remember the covenant that I made with you. Now, does God need to be reminded? Is it like every time God sees a rainbow? Oh, jeez. I was going to flood the earth tomorrow. (laughs) Glad I saw that rainbow. That was a close one, right? That's not what God does. He looks at the rainbow, and it's it's an expression of, of what God will no longer do because it literally says in the Hebrew, God says, I will put my bow in the clouds. And the word there for bow is the word that is used throughout the Old Testament to refer to a warrior's bow that's used with an arrow. Same word. And so what God is saying is, the bow that I had used to bring about destruction, I'm now taking it and I'm hanging it up. And so when you look at the rainbow, everybody knows the direction of a rainbow, right? It goes like this. (laughs) Where does a rainbow point up to? It points to heaven now. And so instead of that bow being pointed down towards earth, God says, I've hung it up, that you no more longer have the threat of me pointing down at you. In fact, many theologians have come and said the direction of the rainbow is important because it points to God now. If anybody will suffer judgment, if anybody's going to suffer wrath for the sins of man, it's not humanity. God does now. In fact, one day, all of the judgment that remains for humanity because of our sin is poured out on Jesus Christ, is it not? And so all that wrath that had been stored up is poured out upon Jesus Christ. And so when God says, I'm not going to destroy the earth with a flood any longer, he has kept his promise and he will keep his promise. But ultimately, that sign of the covenant points to the fact that somebody will absorb the wrath of God. But it's not us, it's not you, or it's not me. It's his one and only son, Jesus Christ. See, all of this story is intended to point us forward and point us to the fulfillment of what God will ultimately do through his son, Jesus Christ. 
And it's why that I look at this and I say, Here, here's the deal. The final takeaway for us this morning is this. We are dependent on God's covenant in order to keep his commands and his commission. You see, if God doesn't covenant with us like he did with Noah, if God doesn't send his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to free us from the wrath of God and to give us the grace that empowers us to now live new lives, if God doesn't come, as we heard in our question this morning, and redeem us from the penalty and the power of sin, we can't live the lives that we were created to live, to bear his image. But praise be to God this morning. Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, came, and because he did, because of the new covenant that we're going to celebrate in just a minute at the Lord's table, the new covenant in his blood, you and I, now hear the commission of God to go and to live as his sons and his daughters, to obey his commandments. And we say, because of the covenant he made with us, we are able to live and to manifest this to the world. Everything that God did and expressed to Noah, dear church family, has reached its fullness in and through Jesus Christ for you and me. We are now recipients of a grace beyond measure, and so may we live in light of that grace. Let's pray together. Lord, as we close out our time this morning, we hear your word and we know that it's only by your spirit's power that we are able to receive it and walk in it. And so, Lord, may you do that work, that we would live by faith through the grace that you have provided as the new people of God redeemed from the penalty and power of sin walking in a new covenant that you have made so that, Lord, we might bring the light of Christ into the world, no longer living for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and rose. So to him be the glory, now and forevermore. And all God's people said, amen, amen.